So typically, when you have a lot of these hacks, people blame the developers who wrote those smart contracts. But here was a compiler level bug, which means that any contract which was using the same exact Viper version was at risk. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as an investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become a liquid at any time, and is only for those investors with high risk tolerance. Now let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey. Hey, Ryan. Good morning. Welcome back, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. It feels, feels good to be back. All right, let's let's jump right in. This is actually we were just talking before we before we joined here. This is our uh, one year anniversary episode. Jack won't be joining us today because, um, you know, I guess he was celebrating. Um, he got married over the weekend, or at least we think he got married. We haven't heard from him, but we're hoping he got married because <laughs> um, he was supposed to get married this weekend. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so so today, um, you know, we'll kick it off uh, with a last week I tried with Parth. Um, and then we have a couple of news stories that we'd like to cover. Um, the first being, you know, Block um, reporting pre- pretty positive uh, revenue growth related to their Bitcoin business um, or businesses and services. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that and kind of where their strategic focus is are um, and then we'll we'll jump into probably what was the most notable story last week which is the hack that happened with curve talk a little bit about what happened and what the implications for DeFi are and then if we have time at the end i think we have some late breaking news around paypal launching a stable coin although you know still you know relatively little information as it just happened um, with that parth do you want to talk a little bit about what you tried last week so last week i finally got onboarded to uh, nike's swoosh platform and so I was waitlisted wait on this platform for close to six months. I think I signed up late December. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Swoosh is a Web3 platform uh, by Nike for something called as Fidgetals, right? Which is physical and digital sneakers. And so I, I know I can almost see Ryan cringe at this word when I when I said Fidgetals. But um, Swoosh is this online company store which lets you buy or trade sneakers and redeem those NFTs for an actual sneaker, for a sneaker pair. So an example would be that I can create my custom Air Force Ones, uh, get some input from Nike's designers, and then redeem them for physical shoes and get it shipped to my house. Uh, so that's the digital use case. And so maybe one question which a lot of people have is, why do you need NFTs in this case, right? This can all be done on a simple website. Why do I need this whole concept of having a digital representation of my sneakers? But The real power that this unlocks, in my opinion, is that if I'm a designer of sneakers and if I'm not hired by Nike, if I'm not registered by Nike, or if I'm not on the Nike design team, I can still design my virtual sneaker collection and build a marketplace for these sneakers. 
right? And all of this would happen in the swoosh platform, in the swoosh umbrella. Uh, and so Nike captures all of that good amount of value. Uh, and that's exactly like, that's one big use case for the swoosh platform. It's, it's kind of a more, it's definitely a marketing opportunity. Uh, but the example here is if Ryan is a sneakerhead, he designs the, the dopest sneakers and you don't have a marketplace right now. So what you're going to do is you're going to drop your 20 limited edition sneakers on on the swoosh platform. People can trade them. They, the, the value of those sneakers can go up or down. And then one person, Jason, can decide to get them physically made. He can decide to redeem uh, those NFTs for an actual sneaker pair. Uh, do you guys think this concept is cool? I, I think, you know like most other collectibles right there's a huge huge community around these things and so it feels like to me that this company is embracing kind of what the future of community might look like in web3 by taking this step i think there's other use cases uh that i'm personally maybe a little bit more interested in like when we think about you know like authenticity for example right like there's like with and major you know most other designer brands you know there's there's forgeries that exist down in the marketplace and like is there an opportunity to maybe make like certificates of authenticity um for these sneakers right like when you buy a pair of, of air jordan like you know right that um, they came directly from Nike because you you own this NFT. So that to me like would be another angle to look at. But I do agree. I think you know again these are very vibrant communities and like the opportunity to be able to trade and interact with other people of, in of similar interests to me seems seems right. Yeah, I mean you have no idea how expensive some of these sneakers go for. And so I personally am a huge fan of redeemables because it, it kind of builds a strong like customer relationship with the brand. Right. So now that I'm signed up on the Swoosh platform, I have a soul bound token. Now I'm invested. I'm kind of designing. I'm spending like an hour and a half designing my custom uh, AF once. Um, and then a lot of people are also thinking of this as a digital store of value. So I know like my this is kind of funny. So my, my fiance tells me that a Chanel bag is a great investment and it actually <laughs> holds value. And I, I'm not sure I buy into this argument, but I would rather have a virtual Chanel bag so that I can sell instantly for liquidity. I'm sure she would disagree, but I think I think a lot of people also think about <laughs> these goods as store of value. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, you have to know what you're buying, Parth. So, you know, just like you see the value in the sneakers, maybe maybe there's something that you're just just venturing to guess that there might be something you're missing with Chanel bags. <laughs> I, I I have to just. I got to chime in. That's hilarious part. <laughs> this is definitely not an argument you're going to want to carry forward too long. But uh, when, when you talk about the physical and the digital, it reminds me of years ago, um, before we even heard the term Web3, there were a bunch of different video games that combined physical characters with on-screen graphics. So it's almost like that's the maturation of, of that early stage. And I remember uh, going into the stores and looking for particular characters and going from store to store, you know, these things just weren't available. So the scarcity still exists. And I think what you're really hitting on here is that you you have combined both physical and digital scarcity if you have the ability to create and design your own uh, your own items. So I think it's pretty cool. I think it's fun. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to keep you guys updated on my on my experience using the Switch platform. Maybe I, I can do a follow up of uh, last week I tried in the next uh, few months or a few weeks. 
Yeah, yeah, no, definitely keep us posted. And and I think Nike's like a good example of like a traditional, you know, in this case, sportswear company that's embracing NFTs. But there's been a lot of other, you know, apparel and fashion brands and lifestyle brands that have have done the same um, kind of in recognition that this may be where the world is moving. But I think let's maybe shift gears a bit and talk about a company that has kind of crypto at its core and is, is you know, generally very crypto maximalist, and that is Block. Um, and so, Jason, do you want to just provide maybe a little bit of an overview um, as to kind of what the numbers were and why we think it might be significant uh, moving forward? Yeah, I'm happy to. And you know, before I even get into the numbers, I just want to make sure it's understood that this is not an endorsement of the company or anything like that. It's just a, really looking at the facts that they've reported in um, in their most recent quarterly filings, but then also looking a bit at the history of the company and contributions that they've made to the Bitcoin ecosystem. So. Uh, we saw last week uh, that Block reported 34% uh, year-over-year growth in terms of the revenue generated from uh, Bitcoin sales. So they reported $2.4 billion of revenue overall in Q2. Uh, the Cash App users reported uh, about $1.16 billion of Bitcoin purchases during the quarter. But I think it's really important to understand that when Block talks about uh, revenue, that, that doesn't equate to uh, their net margin. So they record the value of the Bitcoin expressed in dollars as the sales value or the revenue value. But I think what was really also interesting is the company holds Bitcoin on its balance sheet. We know a few other publicly traded companies do. And at times they've had to take an impairment charge when the value of their Bitcoin holdings had gone down. So you never get to write it up if the value goes up, but you have to carry it at the lowest cost. And the company did not need to write down any impairment charge for, for this year, this second quarter. Um, but they noted that they have approximately $245 million worth of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So um, interesting. But I wanted to sort of zoom out a little bit and say, okay, square, block, what happened? How do, how do we get to where we are today knowing the company as block? And they actually filed for a name change back in December of 2021. And I think that was in part to try and emphasize the evolution of the company. So going from digital payments into one that was really um, focused on digital payments, but much more. And we know Jack Dorsey, one of the founders um, and leader of, of Block, is, a, is known as a Bitcoin maximalist. You know, you can say he's an enthusiastic contributor to the ecosystem. But when you think about what the company has done, they have uh, created an easier on-ramp for many people, and I say easier, easier than it was some years ago, to move between fiat and crypto. And that's when they, they started offering Bitcoin through the Cash App um, part of the business back in 2018. And one of the quotes I found looking through uh, research getting ready for today was that you know, it may not be the sole mission, but one of the mission of Cash App is to make Bitcoin usable as a currency. So they're trying to push beyond the digital gold narrative and looking at trying to help Bitcoin become the native currency of the internet. So other ways they did that is they, they allowed for direct deposit customers to be able to receive their payments in Bitcoin, either full or partial. Uh, they've implemented a roundup feature uh, for Cash App debit card users. If you know you spend uh, you know $2.10, you want to round up the other 90 cents and get that in Bitcoin, you can do that very easily. And They've also worked on uh, integrating the Lightning Network for Bitcoin payments. And 
Um, they started out with just uh, supporting um, send transactions, but they've also added in uh, support for receipt of transactions, a receipt of deposits through Lightning as well. So there's a little bit more that they've done, but I'll pause there and ask, I mean, for you guys, have you been keeping up with this? Is, it, is there anything that surprises you here or anything that you want to talk more about? Maybe their, uh, their hardware wallet applications or their foray into mining? I think Block is a, a, a really fascinating company. Right. And it, I think in the past, Jack Dorsey has said that he wants the block to be a Bitcoin company, right? So not just a financial company, but a Bitcoin company. And that tells you a lot about their conviction into uh, integrating to the Bitcoin ecosystem. I So I, I've heard about their hardware wallet. I think it's called BitKey, which is kind of a self-custody way of combining both hardware and software. Uh, but... What I really thought was interesting was I, I think Jack was working on this secret project, which did not have a name. And then they decided to call it TBD, which I think was really smart and cheeky. But uh, they came out with a white paper, which basically tells you that they are building something called as TBDX or TBDEX, but it's a decentralized exchange for Bitcoin. So you know how we are so used to using DEXs on Ethereum. We think about Uniswap curve, but there, when, it, when you think about it, there is no, there is no way to exchange your, your Bitcoin, uh, on, in a decentralized manner, unless you actually send someone money. So, uh, so TB DEX is supposed to be, that's the decentralized exchange for Bitcoin. They also want to be this all in one financial application. In fact, last year I did my taxes using Cash App. You can buy ETFs, you can buy stocks, you can send Bitcoin on Cash App. They have a ubiquitous on and off ramp structure directly between fiat and crypto on Cash App without the need for uh, centralized authorities. In part, I'll nitpick for a second if you'll allow me. Um, it's an on and off ramp between fiat and Bitcoin. And I, I, I call it not crypto because they actually had a company that was under the same umbrella called um, Square Crypto previously. And they decided to uh, change the name of that company to Spiral to better reflect the fact that it, it was Bitcoin focused. Um, and it wasn't really, although it was under the same umbrella, it really didn't have much to do with, with Square at all. So what I found interesting and one of the reasons why they called it Spiral is that uh, like a spiral from a single point encompassing more and more space until it touches everything, they want Bitcoin to continue to grow. So um, some hidden meanings behind the name there. To your point, Jason, around them investing in mining, they historically have invested, I would say, pretty heavily as far as crypto companies go in, you know, maybe projects that are a little bit further out. And depending on what side of the fence you're sitting on, right, some would say that even their lightning integration is a relatively cutting edge thing, um, just given the nascency around the lightning network and the fact that you haven't seen a lot of the major payment providers, even in the crypto space, you know, embrace and adopt lightning. Um, on the mining side too, right? I think the goal there is to improve participation um, in the process of mining through decentralization. Um, and they're doing something that a a lot of people won't do, right? Because it's really hard. And that is basically designing silicon from the ground up so that it uses a lot less power um, and could potentially be done at home, again, in the spirit of increasing participation in these networks, right? So I think that ethos of being kind of crypto first comes through in how the company is investing their money. And I think at least to date, it seems to be, you know, working out and starting to actually manifest into actual products that people are using. So it'll be really interesting to watch. I think they're obviously one of the original players that were in the payment space that moved into more and more into the crypto space. And I think we'll probably continue to see some really novel projects come out of that company. 
I think Jack Dorsey to the Bitcoin system is what Elon Musk is to electric cars. That's that's what he aspires to be. That's a big comparison. I I think he like his work is pretty fascinating. I I think that's a really interesting point because there is a lot of diversity in the projects that are supported, both from the the block as a company and Jack Dorsey as an individual person. Um, and, and Ryan, I think you're right in terms of talking about some of the, the push in the mining space. I was reading some quotes where Jack was basically saying that uh, mining should be more distributed to increase resilience. Um, it should be easier just plugging into a, a power source. So he basically calls out that the complexity of uh, acquiring and running mining rigs today is a burden and a barrier to entry. And they're trying to make that more accessible to others. And what I was surprised to find as I was doing some of this research was that there seems to be an awful lot of work being done in the hardware space by Block, by the Spiral Company. And generally speaking, I had thought about Jack as a promoter talking in front of Congress about the value, famously with a block clock in the background. And I think when you look at the vision, I think you're right, Ryan. It's a much, much longer term vision. So yeah, uh, I don't know if you were at this conference, but I think it was Bitcoin 2022, maybe, or back in Miami sometime last year. Um, there was a joint announcement between Blockstream, Tesla, and Block, where they were going to essentially stand up a completely solar-powered mining operation out in the West Texas. And it was going to be using uh, Tesla battery power to store that solar power that was generated. Um, yep. I think it was interesting because they're trying to both show ways to make it more accessible, reduce the cost, but also to promote use of green energy. And, and well, running right. And I, again, I think that aligns with the theme of, you know, here's an issue or, or a blocker as they're perceiving it. And here's how we're looking to address it. Right. And, and these are difficult problems to solve largely right into your point around hardware design. Right. You don't you don't frequently see a company that's focused largely on software, then move into hardware. Right. It's you know, those are two very different games, you know, or I should say playing fields. And so I think it, it's it's telling that they're kind of hitting these things head on. Um, and ultimately will probably, you know, if they're successful, become a pretty full stack provider of software and hardware solutions. I I agree. And it's it's very interesting. I'm going to continue to to follow this more personally, just because I want to see what's coming out of this other entity spiral. You know, it seems like they're focusing on making uh, development tools and infrastructure so that people can uh, have an easier time experiencing or interacting with the Bitcoin ecosystem. I also like the fact that they are strong advocates for maintaining privacy. And when you talk about these public ledgers where everything is discoverable, there needs to be uh, a good balance between that transparency and, and maintaining of individual privacy. Speaking of privacy, there was one person last week who really wanted his wallet to be private, and that was Michael Igorov, the founder <laughs> yeah. of Corp. <laughs> okay, that's a nice, that's a nice transition. That's smooth, right? See what you did there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Parth, you know, we talk about hacks and DeFi a lot, right? Um, it kind of feels like every week, um, or sometimes multiple times a week, and then sometimes not. But um, can we, can you just provide maybe a little bit of an overview as to what happened with the curve hack, how they were able to gain access to the funds, and then maybe we can parlay that into what it means for the ecosystem? Yeah. So what I would do is I would not treat this hack uh, just as a regular hack, because it is actually a, a really multi-layered story, and it has a lot of super interesting plot lines and, and twists, right? So what I would love to do is I would kind of divide this into three big components, the first would be the actual hack on Curve Pools. The second would be Michael Igorov, who's the founder of Curve and his loan positions. 
And then the third would be how the problem was fixed uh, by a few handshake deals. But I think this is almost story time, right? Because I, it's it's a it's a really fascinating story, and let's 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 kind of unpack it. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Curve is one of the biggest DeFi protocols. It's a decentralized exchange, uh, which used to be called StableSwap. And the idea of Curve is that it lets you exchange tightly pegged assets. So if I have a USDC, I can trade that for a DAI or a USDT because they are all stable coins. They all have the same value. Similarly, if I have ETH or VET, I can trade that for staked ETH or STEETH or REITH, right? So it's basically synthetic assets of the, of the native token. Now, what happened over the weekend, last weekend, was that there was a hack on close to three, and, three to four liquidity pools on Curve, which were created three years ago. And most of these pools were pretty exotic, right? So when you think about these, the tokens that were affected, it was Alchemix, Al-ETH, uh, essentially tokens that were tracking the price of ETH, right? So tokens which you may have actively used or may not have, but chances are that these are more exotic. So the total hack was around 40 million US dollars, which in the grand scheme of things does not sound like a lot because we are kind of so used to $300 million hacks or $400 million hacks. Uh, and these were all third-party pools which were not deployed by Curve or the Curve Foundation. And so they don't interact with the core protocol, which is the three pool or the four pool, which we frequently talk about. So the really interesting part of the story is that the reason that this hack happened was because some of these pools were using an old version of Viper. Now, Viper is a Python-like programming language for smart contracts. And in my opinion, Viper is kind of like the, the abandoned child compared to Solidity which doesn't have that much limelight, doesn't have that many resources, and only a few big protocols use Viper. So Curve happens to be one of them. Uniswap V1 used to use uh, Viper. I know Yearn Finance also uses um, uh, Viper. But the reason that they were affected was because they were using an older version of, um, of Viper. So at the time of hack, Curve had close to 3.5 billion US dollars. And Think about this way. When this bug happened, Curve happens to be one of the biggest DeFi protocols. People just got really frantic. Like it was honestly a scary moment, right? Because it's one of the biggest protocol. And so right after that, the total assets locked on Curve went down to $1.6 billion. And what's really scary is that this vulnerability is not a smart contract vulnerability. It's a compiler level vulnerability, right? So typically when you have a lot of these hacks, people blame the developers who wrote those smart contracts. But here was a compiler level bug, which means that any contract which was using the same exact Viper version was at risk. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause here because I wanna get your thoughts, but maybe just to give a quick explanation for those of you who are not as technical, a compiler bug is when you write code and it gets converted into bytecode, which is, which is like the computer language and it doesn't match. So like, Imagine that you're building um, furniture for IKEA, right? And it gives you one wrong instruction, and then you're you're kind of screwed, right? Because missed a step. Yeah, missed a step. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So within three minutes of this exploit, basically when this was talked on Twitter, every other protocol on this version uh, started getting hacked. So I'm going to pause it, and I I would love for you guys to reflect uh, on this. Yeah, you know, from my perspective, 
And we're going to talk a little bit about, I think, from here, how this trickled down to other protocols and rippled through the ecosystem. But like, I think this is pretty existential and systemic risk, right? And I think when you think about the relationship between these protocols that are effectively independent to one another, there are likely more interdependencies um, than maybe is obvious to the average user or bystander. So I think, you know, that piece, you know, every time something like this happens, I think there's significant learnings for the developers in the space. And I think this is going to be no different. It is very interesting to, to sort of pull back the covers a bit and, and show what is happening. And it's this multi-layered architecture that people are relying upon. And most people aren't savvy enough to be able to go in and check. So there's a lot of trust in the development in the, the compilation, as you were describing here with, with Viper. Um, in some ways, I think um, many, many people will look at that and say, well, there are other products and services that I use today where I don't understand that. So is it really that big of a difference? And I think the answer is it depends on your value at risk. But a lot of people will jump into a car without understanding how the engine works, or they will take some type of transportation, or they'll use some internet site without realizing. So I don't think that it's necessarily going to um, be a, a major barrier for, for people to continue to experiment. I think it does serve as a reminder to to really manage your risks and and don't invest more than you are willing to be able to lose. You know, All of the things that we talk about is... Um, people who've been in this industry for a while just comes back to light. But I'll call it the basic equation in, in my mind is I'm going to use some software and I'm going to trust that it works. If it doesn't, I can't blame myself. I can turn around and say, like, I took this risk. I'm relying upon these parties. Ultimately, people will follow where there is liquidity. They'll follow volume. Um, a lot of people take advantage of volatility. But this is a stable coin market, right? This is stables for stables. And it just was a seemingly an outdated piece of code. So maybe taking your analogy forward, I think because in my opinion, it's still a pretty big deal, right? So if you drive a car, you don't know how the engine works. And the engine has kind of withstood the test of time. But after five years, you, you realize that, you know what, one part of the engine does not work and it doesn't work for X number of cars, like a lot of these cars. Yeah. So that gets pretty, that gets pretty scary, uh, which is kind of in my, like, this was kind of the trickiest hack possible because I don't think I've seen a compiler level bug in the past. So it kind of makes you question that are any of these blue chip protocols like Uniswap, Aave, Curve is, is like, is pretty much any protocol safe at this point? Well, I, I, I don't disagree with you and I don't mean to come across as cavalier with the risk, but when in other industries, when things like this happen, we have something called a recall, right? So like, will we start to see code recalls. I don't think you're ever going to see it. Um, we have seen it sometimes played out in real time on social media, and that's what actually leads to the exploit being magnified. But I, I think as an industry, if we want to be able to continue to mature, there's going to have to be further hardening. Yep. All right. So maybe we can move to the second part of the story. One part which I kind of skipped in the first part was that uh, you also, so once the hacker decided to exploit Curve, you had a bunch of these MEV bots that suddenly became the good guys and uh, they kind of tried to extract value from the hacker and then give it back to the protocol. So uh, MEV is obviously a different, we need a special episode just on MEV. But uh, for those of you who don't know about MEV, MEV bots, in my opinion, are almost like rogues that kind of coerce people into giving money. 
but then if there is a bigger crime they kind of join forces and then be they they get they become the good guys right so in this case they became the good guys by returning the hacked money to the to the protocols so because of this hack it led to the price of curve token going down significantly and so the second part of this story is more based around michael igorov or mitch who's the founder of curve now mitch has a huge amount of curve tokens so he had deposited his curve tokens into a bunch of lending protocols to take large large loans right on stable coins so and i think he reportedly also bought a mansion in australia so he bought real world assets from all this lending liquidity uh, that he had and so now that the price of the curve token was so bad he was at the risk of liquidation or getting margin called so i think i believe if the price of curve went down to 37 cents uh that would have caused a death spiral and resulted in curve essentially going in a free fall going close to zero and a lot of bad debt uh in a bunch of lending protocols like aave and fraxland so this was the kind of the second part of the story what's also interesting is the hacker also had a bunch of curve tokens which they could dump any single time so michael was on a timer basically right this was kind of double whammy for him cuz the key issue here is if you are borrowing against a token which does not have a lot of liquidity that can go down quickly you can be in these kind of situations so i'm going to i'm going to stop here cuz i know we've kind of seen these loans before if you remember ftt token uh by alameda research was another one example where you had a lot of tokens concentrated in a few wallets and then they were borrowing lending that the same token um and and doing other strategies but any thoughts here yeah so i guess go just going back to my earlier comment right i think when we think about systemic risk and how systemic risk is managed in like traditional financial services applications i think that idea here probably needs to be addressed right because there's a high degree of kind of interconnectedness between you know people taking loans out against assets they're not being a ton of transparency because it's the system is so decentralized they take those funds onto other things right and it creates this kind of compounding effect where when you kind of take a step back and unwind it if something goes wrong at you know step a you know it, the whole thing could come crumbling down right and so i think you know it it's interesting because that characteristic is what ultimately saved a lot of these you know that programmatic characteristic um and decentralized aspect of these pro- of these protocols is are what saved them from the meltdown of the cfi lenders last year but is also i guess the flip side of that coin is is cases like this where you know you can't really manually intervene right and so you kind of have you know that risk that emerges that kind of always exists and you you don't know it exists until it's you know you're staring at right at it and then maybe it's too late but in this case again like it's it seems like it's funny because you know all of this is you know highly automated highly decentralized but it sounds like what ultimately kind of prevented this from becoming a, a huge issue were you know was a pretty analog process of doing otc transactions with actual you know maybe physical handshakes there's no one answer to this problem but it certainly as as we think about you know institutional adoption and more value being transferred over these rails is something that will likely need to be addressed um because again we have really good you know tried and true controls in place for these types of risks and in traditional applications but they just don't exist in defi yeah and maybe jason not to put you on the spot but i think in this case this was a classic example of a lot of these lending protocols having bad debt 
Um, and if you if you don't mind explaining what bad debt is, I think it might actually be helpful for a lot of the listeners uh, on on how you would categorize or how would you explain bad debt. Uh, yeah, I, I guess maybe I, I would zoom out and say when when I think when I personally think about bad debt, I think about a debt that is uh, has a lower probability of being repaid. So it's a higher risk. Therefore, they often trade at um, pennies on the dollar. So you think about uh, a, a classification called distressed debt. So you might see that people are willing to transact in that market because the, the current value is, is at a discount and the upside is um, greater than perhaps they're, maybe they're hedging their downside risk. So when I think about it from a protocol perspective, um, uh, some, someone may be willing to step in and, and participate in that particular protocol because they've got an arbitrage opportunity. Um, it's not typically I have full belief I'm going to come in and I'm going to just, this is going to recover. I, in my opinion, most people are thinking about their activities in a very calculated way. Um, you know, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> let's, be, let's be honest. But I do think that there's, uh, there are markets for distressed debt, and those distressed debt markets actually can um, be very helpful in terms of providing liquidity in times of of, uh, of illiquid um, situations. And I, I yeah. would just say I also think about it um, in this context of people will, sometimes will will trade on almost on a receivable as opposed to you know the real time. So apply some type of discounted cash flow calculation to something. But you know, when I think about DeFi, I think about some of the protocols having these searchers or having this element that's there to try and protect the lender. And in some ways, I think about the participants in the distressed market as being um, somewhat similar to those searcher bots who are there to try and protect the protocol as opposed to um, yep. the initial borrower. Yeah. So, so maybe just to wrap this up, so what really happened in order to save the day, Michael ended up securing OTC desk deals, just like Ryan mentioned before. So he ended up striking deals with Justin Sun, DCF God, and others. And uh, mind you, these are all handshake deals, right? So they have decided, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you can buy curve tokens at this price. Let's lock those curve tokens for the next three months. But the the problem is that it's not governed on chain. So if a person decides to not honor it, they can decide to dump it again. So I, I would say we are out of the woods now. The health factor on a lot of these loans are much better, but who knows what could happen in the next two months because I don't see the situation fully resolved. But I, my key takeaway is that there's always going to be demand, OTC demand in crypto, which I thought, uh, which I thought otherwise before this situation. Um, and I, I also feel like I think, um, there just has to be more resources in, um, in different languages, right? So if there is client diversity, there has to be more resources put into different clients, different languages. But for me, as my my personal opinion is that I'm still going to go with something which is majorly tested. So I'm, I I I personally took my positions out of any Viper like DeFi protocol. Th those were kind of my key takeaways. Appreciate the overview, Parth. Definitely really interesting. Kind of kind of similar to again what we've seen in the past, but there's definitely some unique unique attributes to the situation here, and um, you know. 
a, a lot to learn for the ecosystem, uh, without a doubt. Um, all right, let's um, just quickly, again, um, we don't have a ton of information on this, but Jason, I'd love to get your thoughts in particular. Um, so late breaking news today is that PayPal, um, you know, has announced that they're going to be launching a stablecoin um, in partnership with Paxos, who will be uh, managing the the kind of issuance and the token lifecycle with the stablecoins. Um, and this will be available to customers, um, not only for transfers, but um, also to use with uh, purchases. Um, I think this is really interesting, right? I think the timing is is kind of interesting, just given um, the fact that we've seen so much movement on, you know, proposed stablecoin legislation in the last couple of weeks, um, and obviously nothing, you know, set in stone now. But you know, you know, it's at least seeming like it's going to advance, um, I- at least in the House. Um, but yeah, you have any thoughts on this? Um, like you said, it's it's just come out, but I I think you're right. I think this is. Uh, potentially pushing the dialogue further with um, with regulators. It appears that it's, um, as you mentioned, with Paxos Trust, um, it is redeemable for dollars it's being reported to be, but also could be exchanged for other cryptocurrencies on PayPal's network. So it seems like um, it's being used on PayPal's network. I don't know if it's going to be available in the wild per se, but we did see a comment from uh, Representative Patrick McHenry, who chairs the House Financial Services Committee, basically saying that um, it's a clear signal that stable coins, if under issued under a regulatory clear framework, hold promise as a pillar for the 21st century payment system. So I think that statement would apply to any issuer that brought forward a, a product that was regulatory compliant. But it seems also that they're going to be um, providing monthly attestations as to the reserve portfolio starting in September. So um, I think it's it's an interesting timing because we we do see that um, there's been a decline in the overall uh, volume of stable coins trading in the market. So uh, I think this is one of those situations we'll we'll continue to monitor it and see how things progress. Yeah, and I'm sure over the next, you know, week or so, we'll see more reactions to this announcement from, you know, legislators as well as, you know, just bystanders in the in the space. So more to come. Um, all right. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, this was a really great discussion of, of, you know, pretty large variety. So appreciate the contributions today. And um, we'll we'll see you all next week. Have a good rest of your week. Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated, based on the information available at the time, and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by 
any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would, or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. One zero four zero one five six.